Want to be a part of the conversation? Then let us know on the TNT Radio interactive live chat room at tntradio.live. Lighting the fuse for freedom. Today's news talk, TNT Radio. The Reckoning with Timothy Shea on today's news talk, TNT Radio. Insurrection! We had an insurrection at the Capitol today. Domestic terrorist Linda Sarsour and her pro-Hamas harridans took over the Capitol and were actually arrested. And I've been speaking the last few months about a sea change since about January, right? I could just feel it. I'm a sailor and we always look for the little ripples on the water called cat paws that indicate that there's a, a breeze coming in, a change of uh, wind direction so that you can prepare for it and not get tipped over. You're constantly scanning the surface of the water for the cat's paws, see where the wind is. And I've sensed a sea change, a wind change here now for uh, 10, 11 months. People are waking up and all sorts of people that you wouldn't expect to wake up are waking up. We've got gays against groomers. We've got blacks for Trump. We've got people in the inner city realizing that both parties are colluding against us. It's going to be an interesting 2024. I urge you to please keep President Trump in your prayers as he is in mine, because it looks like their only option at this point is a hard reset. And look at who they're pumping up. Why are they putting so much money into Nikki Haley to get ahead of Ron Disappoints Us? Why is Nikki the latest media darling? Do they know something we don't? Because she's certainly not winning any elections anytime soon, as long as DJT is on the ballot. So it's greatly concerning reading the tea leaves and seeing, you know, you can't put anything past these people. Just ask anyone who's ever had information that was deleterious to the Clintons. And as you go about your holiday travels, doing last minute shopping, or just out enjoying the lights, always remember that those decorations didn't hang themselves. Neither did Jeffrey Epstein. And it looks like, as part of this sea change, it looks like in January 2024, the court is actually going to unseal the list of Epstein's accomplices, his quote-unquote client list. It'd be very interesting to see who's on that list and in what capacity. Some people on there are going to not be part of any trafficking operation, either as a participant or as an end user of trafficked women and children. But the fact that the court is going to unseal that is fascinating. And Judge Aragon in New York has doubled down. It looks almost as though he's trying to get kicked off the bench, not just overturned on appeal, but actually kicked off the bench because today he came out against one of Trump's expert witnesses, credit, challenging the credibility of the witness because of his $900,000 witness fee. Well, that's quite quite common. In fact, you can't get an expert witness unless you pay an expert witness fee. So that's a big no-no for Judge Aragon. But will he ever be held to account? If he is, 
realize that there's an awful lot more going on than we even realize. Because if they take out a corrupt judge like Aragon, then good things are in the offing. And all of a sudden, the media has turned on President Gay up in Harvard, up in Cambridge. And if ever anyone was inappropriately named, it was President Gay. There's nothing lighthearted or carefree about her. And now, in addition to the existing plagiarism charges, there are not just 10, not just 20, not even 30, but 40, 40, 40 new allegations of plagiarism in her scholarship. Not such a good look for a university professor to be a plagiarist. Perhaps she'll run for president just like Joe Biden did. And again, I remind you, Biden's presidency isn't an indictment of the Biden crime family, which, by the way, more info's coming out on them. And did the president just defraud the federal government by transporting Hunter on Marine One without having him on the passenger manifest? The Marine Corps bills passengers just like the Air Force bills passengers on Air Force One. Did Joe try to get a freebie for Hunter? Because that's a no-no. That's called defrauding the federal government. And it's called abuse of power. In addition to grand theft, it's above a $5,000 value. Will they ever be held to account? Again, if they are, you know that something's in the offing. There's more reports of Dr. Jill micromanaging StumbleBum Joe's schedule so that he has more nap time. Again, everybody knows that Joe isn't running the country. Joe can't control even his own bowels, much less our federal government. No, these are Marxists hell-bent on destroying the United States of America from within, just as Abraham Lincoln predicted would be the only way that we would ever be taken down. I'm Timothy Shea. This is The Reckoning. Are you enjoying listening to TNT Radio? Do you think we're doing a good job? Then please let us know. Why not leave us a like or a positive review or comment on Facebook, Gab, or Getter? Help us get the word out as we cover the biggest topics of our time on today's news talk, TNT Radio. The facts, no spin or agenda. Not enough with the lies, we need the facts. This is today's news talk radio, TNT. On Monday, a federal judge issued a temporary order halting the planned removal of a Confederate monument at Arlington National Cemetery in Virginia. Here with the story, joining me now is TNT Radio News producer, Adam Ruckus-Clark. Thanks, Timothy. Um, Work had already begun to remove what's known as the Confederate Memorial, which was erected in 1914 in honor of soldiers who died fighting for the Confederacy during the Civil War. War. The statue features a bronze woman crowned with olive leaves standing on a 32-foot pedestal. The woman holds a laurel wreath, a plow stock, and a pruning hook with a biblical inscription at her feet that says, quote, they have beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, end quote. It was allegedly designed to represent the American South. Um Now, the monument had not yet been dismantled when this order uh, from the judge was issued, and it remains in place on cemetery grounds. The lawsuit was filed on, I think it was Sunday, uh, December 17th, by a group called Defend Arlington. 
uh, according to reports, mostly coming from the Associated Press. Uh, the same group sued the U.S. Army and the U.S. Department of Defense in February to halt the memorial's removal, but a district judge last week tossed the case and allowed the work to proceed in accordance with recommendations from a congressionally mandated naming commission. The commission comprised of civilian authorities and retired and current defense officials was tasked to review the department, the defense department's assets and identify, quote, all names, symbols, displays, monuments and paraphernalia that honor or commemorate the Confederate States of America, end quote. The Army has renamed nine bases across the nation to comply with the commission's final report. In its latest lawsuit, Defend Arlington accused the Army, which maintains the cemetery, of violating federal regulations. The lawsuit states that, quote, the removal will desecrate damage and likely destroy the memorial long standing at ANC as a grave marker and impede the memorial's eligibility for listing on the National Register of Historic Places, end quote. U.S. District Judge Rossi Alston, who granted defend Arlington's request for a restraining order, said the parties should be prepared to make their case at a hearing scheduled for I think tomorrow, Wednesday, December 20th, uh, in a footnote, the judge wrote that he, quote, takes very seriously the representations of officers of the court. And should the representations in this case be untrue or exaggerated, the court may take appropriate sanctions, end quote. Uh, the memorial was commissioned in 1898 by President William McKinley, the last U.S. president to have fought under the Union banner in the Civil War. In 1900, Congress allowed for more than 400 Confederate veterans to be reinterred, in, uh, reinterred at Arch Arlington National Cemetery in graves forming concentric circles around the memorial in an effort to foster reconciliation and heal the nation's war wounds. President McKinley said in an 1898 speech, quote, in the spirit of fraternity, we should share with you in the care of the graves of Confederate soldiers. Sectional feeling no longer holds back the love we feel for each other. The old flag again waves over us in peace with new glories, end quote. And buried at the base of the memorial is its designer, Moses Jacob Ezekiel, a Jewish Confederate veteran and Virginia native um there this group by the way has an, an association with a group called the florida heritage group um a spokesperson for them uh david McAllister, welcomed the judge's order while acknowledging it's only temporary he said the current case oh wait what did he say what did he say uh, sorry, he said generally that the memorial promotes reconciliation between North and South and that removing it erodes that reconciliation. So there we go, uh, Timothy. So history uh, being erased with the taking down of these monuments and statues. Always a fight over these statues. What's up with that? What do you think? Well, you see, the left can't build anything up. All they can do is tear down. Just look at the past 15 years for proof of that. Show me one thing that the left has built up, has created, that's noble, that's uplifting, that's peaceful. There's nothing. All they have is violence, and all they can do is tear down, destroy, denigrate, and basically ruin American culture. You know, 
The left is why we can't have nice things. Let's not put too fine a point on it. Okay, you're absolutely correct. This monument, and if anyone's ever seen it, it's absolutely beautiful. It not only is a symbol of peace and recon reconciliation, but it is a testament to the diversity of the South, the racial diversity of the South. And although still not perfect, remember those words, in order to form a more perfect union, not in order to form a perfect union. Founders knew it wasn't perfect. Most of them, including Thomas Jefferson, didn't want slavery. And the vote was to remove slavery, the, the prohibition against slavery from the Declaration of Independence because they needed it to be unanimous. It had to be all 13 colonies or they weren't going to do it. And in order to get Georgia and South Carolina to sign on, they had to not attack slavery directly. But make no mistake, Jefferson, even though he had inherited slaves, and Washington, even though he had inherited slaves, were very much against slavery. And they realized it was going to take time to do away with the institution, and that is exactly what happened. But this memorial is peace and reconciliation. That's what the Bible verse around the perimeter, around the, the lower edge means, that they've beaten their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, meaning we've taken implements of war and turned them into implements of peace. This is important for a lot of reasons. One of them is the cost. The left seems to not care about how much anything costs if it furthers their agenda. One of the most ex uh, significant expenses a corporation can undergo is a name change. And think about what it takes to change a base name. All the records need to be changed. All, you know, all the certificates of graduation, all of the pieces of paper that bear the base name. Yeah, the old ones need to be thrown away and new ones printed up. That's a lot of stationery. That's a lot of diplomas. That's a lot of awards. Signage, all the signs need to be changed. It runs into the tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars, and the left doesn't care. But of course, if there's anything with which they disagree, like building a wall, we, <laughs> we can't afford that. <laughs> Meanwhile, illegal immigration has cost this country a hundred times more than completing the wall would have cost because the left hates to build anything. They have a bloodthirst for tearing things down. Well said, Timothy. Um, well, the proof is in the pudding, as it were, right? Their actions, in this case, are speaking louder than their words. You will know them by their fruit. Thanks, Adam. That's a great story. You're listening to The Reckoning on TNT Radio. You should hear what Charlie Robinson is talking about. I think once we saw the supply chain issues uh, that happened during the COVID debacle, you go, well, that seems bad for the, you know, when you're fighting somebody for toilet paper, but it could be worse, right? It could be the last can of food. So people are starting to reevaluate and reassess their situations and their relationship with supply chains and the like. And I think what that does is it leads you to a place of saying, how can I make myself less dependent on the system? It's kind of hard to know where to start, right? 
right? Where would you suggest we even begin with this process? Yeah, it's funny you said that because someone said to me recently and it made me laugh that this is going to be the kind of collapse where the Burger King's still open. I think that's what's probably lulling people into a false sense of security in that everything when we go to the city kind of appears normal unless you're in one of those really crazy drug adult cities. But for most people, I would say, Charlie, it feels normal, but it ain't normal. <laughs> the world yeah. is not normal. It's completely gone off kilter. Charlie Robinson on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Radio works because of its ability to personalize to the listener. What's exciting these days is that people are rediscovering it. You know, people are really rediscovering just how powerful radio is, how ubiquitous it is. It's in our cars, it's in our homes. There are so many new ways to access it. It's everywhere. To find out more, go to tntradio.live. The conversation continues. I don't believe it, and I think that's a terrible position that I am in, that I don't trust my government. This is today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Chad Robert Stewart is an international award-winning and best-selling author, educator, and global strategist. Through his national school tours, Chad has traveled over 9,000 miles through 23 states and has presented to more than 40,000 students at over 180 schools. One of the most awarded novels in literature, Britfield and the Lost Crown, was the first in this Britfield series of seven books. It is a timeless classic that transforms education and entertainment while fostering creativity, stimulating critical thinking, and bringing encouragement to children and families worldwide. You can find him on X at Britfield World, that's B-R-I-T-F-I-E-L-D World, and on Facebook and Instagram at Official Britfield. And go to the website, Britfield.com and his BritfieldInstitute.org. I'd like to welcome to The Reckoning for the first time, Chad Stewart. Timothy, how are you, sir? I am well, thank you. And I'd like to add my praise to the praise that these books have gotten you already. It's a significant undertaking. It's a, did you set out to write seven books or did did the story just keep growing and this monster just create itself out of whole cloth? Yeah, it is. It's a, it's a major undertaking. And uh, it's interesting. I'm originally from Newport Beach, California. I was back east uh, in Wellesley, Massachusetts for 16 years, did my undergraduate in British literature, European history, and actually got into corporate world consulting and then eventually investment banking. And it's when uh, I was sent down to this really boring seminar in Providence, Rhode Island, 12 years ago that I got the idea for Britfield and the Lost Crown. And so really when I was, um, uh, I started, I went home that weekend and just on one piece of paper, I was kind of outlining it. And I think I was just really eager to do something creative and fun and just write something exciting and fun. I was just dying to do something creative. And uh, at the time I wasn't thinking anything like what we're, we're doing now. I was just thinking a fun little children's book um, kind of reminded me of uh, Beverly Clearly, the famous author of uh, Mouse and the Motorcycle, Run Runaway Ralph, and she says, if you ever go into a library or a bookstore and you don't find what the story you're looking for, write it. And so I did, and I sat down, took me four years, 2,500 hours to write book one, Britfield and Lost Crown, 374-page uh, book that takes place in present-day England. And uh, since then, it's become a seven-book series, followed by seven major motion pictures, um we're, we're in development on two television programs and we launched the theatrical play this year so yeah congratulations i'm surprised our paths didn't cross i lived in wellesley for 15 years did you uh, really isn't that funny yeah, yeah that is in that, that beautiful little stone library right at the junction of 16 and 9 we were able to save that oh, turn nice. it into a children's library yeah 
Wow, that is interesting. I mean, not many people are from Wells. It's the most beautiful little town. I mean, I love it because it's so self-contained. Everything you need is there, and you're only 20 minutes from Boston, right? Exactly, exactly. For people that aren't familiar with the world of Britfield, give us a flavor of sure. the story and, and why uh, it's had such a tremendous reception. Yeah, because it's interesting right now, we're at a we're at a, a paradigm shift, which is, which is exciting. I mean, you know, it's been 10 years from concept to launching in August 2019, and then five years really since that point to where we are right now. Next year, we go global, which is exciting. So everything we've already done and accomplished in the last four and a half, five years has really been a soft launch. But um, what's great about the series is, is many things. Number one, it's in present day, present time. So it's taking place in England. Book one is in England present day, present time. It's about family, friendship, loyalty, courage, hope, and faith. And what's great about it too is um, we don't have any of the sort of elevated uh, fiction. We don't use, we don't have witchcraft, demigods, superheroes, nothing. The books are as authentic as, as can be. Children, adults that are reading it are learning about geography, art, architecture, and culture. And then we're hitting, hitting the four C's, critical thinking, communication, collaboration, and creativity, all within every single book. We've got maps at the front of the book, and so what's happening is, is children and parents uh, worldwide are just connecting with real circumstances, real situations, and real characters. Because at the end of the day, we're in an industry where, frankly, 85, 90% of the stuff out in the market is, is crap, number one. But it's also a huge disconnect from reality. You know, it's the superheroes, it's the witchcraft, it's the vampires, it's all this stuff that isn't real. And it's to disconnect kids from reality. And it's also to make them feel less than they are. You know, in order to do this, you need to have superpowers. And it's just like, no, every child is born amazing. Every child is born gifted. Every child is born with creativity. And that's what we're we're impacting. And that's why we're having literally a national and global movement. This could potentially be the best-selling children's series in history. Um, I don't know of any other series like it. And um, it's exciting. I mean, we get, we're selling books worldwide. And we're getting feedback worldwide from Brazil to Spain to New Zealand to Australia uh, to England, to Canada, through all throughout the United States. We're already in thousands of schools and we're being taught in hundreds of schools. Wait, I'm a little confused though. There, there, there are transsexual characters in it, of course, right? And, and children are taught to protest and, and speak to things like climate change and, and all the isms, right? I mean, that's, that's really, that, that's what it's gotta be about, right? No, none of that garbage is in there. <laughs> How on earth did you get a book that fosters creativity, enhances and encourages critical thinking, improves communication skills, that builds children up and actually educates them and gives them the tools they need to be successful in life? How on earth did you get that published? Uh, 10,000 hours, 10 years, probably 2.5 million that's already in it. And um and then we're, we're cranking it up next year. So yeah, book one is in England, book two is in France, book three is in Italy, book four is in Eastern Europe and Russia. I'm writing that right now. And then uh, book five is will be in Asia, book six will be in South America, book seven will be in the United States. And so it'll travel, the series will travel around the world. Um, what's nice is in book one, the, the two main characters, Tom and Sarah, orphans up at Weatherly Orphanage in Yorkshire, Northern England, are 12 years old. And then in book two, they're 13, book three, they're 14. And so it's a lot of fun to not only age them that one year. And we know, we know like for a fact, right, from 12 to 13 is like a decade, you know, when, right, at that a huge age. jump. 
It is. And, and, and it's so much fun. Like I'm writing book uh, four now and they're, they're just about 15 years old. And again, it's just, they're a little more mature and, and the language is just a little bit different what they're thinking and how they're acting. And that's fun for an author, but it's also great to start book four in Vienna, Austria, gorgeous Vienna. And then it moves through to Prague and uh, to Warsaw and to Berlin, the Baltic, through Eastern Europe and finally to Russia. And so just all these great countries. And so it's so fun that, you know, the book doesn't keep coming back to England, you know, it goes on right. to France and then Italy. And, and so that's a lot of fun. Well, and also you're extolling the benefits of each of the cultures in those countries. You're not looking at them for things you can no. criticize and tear them down. My thesis tonight is that the left can only tear down. They can't build anything up that's beautiful or that's uplifting or that's unifying. They're trying to tear down the, the Confederate Memorial at Arlington National Cemetery, which is a symbol of the South's reunification with the North and how we all sure. are under one flag now. And but all they can do is tear down. And if you look at the books that they publish, they're all either deviant and degenerate and completely mm -hmm. age inappropriate, or they're highly critical of the white race, of the founding fathers, uh, even of the pilgrims. So I love the fact that you embrace each of these different cultures and, and speak to what they've added to Western civilization. Absolutely. And and that's what it's all about. It's a celebration of the country. I mean, why England? You know, I, well, number one, I was a British literature major, European history. Number two, I lived off and on in England from, from Richmond to um, down, down South in Hampshire and, and uh, even up in Northern England and stuff. So I'm writing about the countries I've visited, the countries that I love and enjoy. I mean, it's a celebration of England. Book two is a celebration of France, you know, some of their culture and the, the beauty right. of it and the, the museums and Paris and the Eiffel Tower and and then book three, which is 575 pages, Britfield and Return of the Prince, you know, it goes from, from uh, Lake Como, gorgeous, and I get to describe all of that to Genoa, a little bit of history there, and then to Florence, and then to Rome, and then to Venice, you know, and how exciting for kids and adults to be reading books, and none of it's criticism. I don't have any agenda in these books. They're just fun, high-octane, fast-paced. It's kind of like what, what one of the comments we had from the um, Epoch Times was, um, uh, it's a combination of C.S. Lewis and Dan Brown. I've had some people right. say, "Yeah, that, that was a great comment." Right, I love that, and, and I think that's a really good summary of it and stuff. And I'm a big Lewis fan, and did read the Dan Brown books long time ago and things like that. But I just, but yet it's so different from all of those books, you know. And even with even with Narnia and the world of Narnia, and I love Lewis, you know. But it kind of goes into the magic and into the witch. Sure, it's, it's fantasy, of, exactly. It's fantasy, and, but, yeah. But but these books in their own right are subversive, and I want to get to that after the news. You're listening to the Reckoning on TNT Radio. All right, let's get this underway for our first order of business. TNT Radio News for TNT Radio News. This is James O'Neill. Former Fox News host and current ex-host Tucker Carlson recently expressed strong opposition to the idea of former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley potentially joining forces with former President Donald Trump as his vice presidential candidate. A 6.2 magnitude earthquake struck northwestern China just before midnight on Monday, resulting in significant casualties and damage. In England and Wales, police receive an average of 561 monthly reports of drink spiking. We're the pinup boys and poster girls for free speech. We just don't look as impressive as Vladimir Putin shirtless on a horse. Yeah. 
365. We never stop sifting fact from fiction, misinformation from the truth, from government overreach to the latest on mandates, big tech censorship to propaganda gone mad. Listen to TNT Radio and get the news and views direct from our expert presenters and commentators anywhere you go. Ask Alexa or Google to play TNT Radio or download the TNT Radio app for free from the App Store or Google Play. Today's news talk. This is TNT Radio. Chad, I mentioned that these books in their own way are subversive, and they truly are, because as you said, you had no agenda when you were writing them other than to write good children's literature, but you've discovered a way to leverage the values that they teach and turn them into a, a very powerful educational tool, not just for, for the good teachers that are out there, but for parents and grandparents. No, absolutely. Uh, it's interesting, too, because we created a 80, 83 page study guide based on um, standards for book one. And we did that at the very beginning when we launched it. And so Britfield and the Lost Crown book one is designed to be taught in the classroom. And it's already, as I said before, being taught in hundreds of schools, which is amazing at this time frame when we launched in 2019 and schools have already adapted it. Uh, into their curriculum is amazing. We're working with some of the largest charter school systems right now that are interested in bringing mm -hmm. the Britfield Trilogy into their system. And, you know, really it's our goal in the next eight to 10 years to be in, you know, 80 to 90% of all schools in the nation and then even globally. And we've got a team that will be working on that. Really, we'll be focusing mostly on charter first because <laughs> they're great yeah. schools. We love the homeschool movement. If we have time, we can talk about that. I mean, the homeschool movement's gone from 5 million to almost 20 million in a little on, a little over three years. Um, this book is obviously perfect for them. The homeschooling curriculum, kids that we've met are amazing. It's the best educational system out there. And um, I think in many ways, we're we're in an we're in a uh, educational reformation right now at least in the united states much like martin luther 500 years ago i think you're seeing you're seeing the beginning of the end of the public system and i know they're kicking and whining and screaming and holding on and you're seeing this over there and seeing that over there and number one i think there's a there's you know thousands of amazing teachers that are unfortunately stuck in it and i would say this to the teachers with the homeschool movement that that is a need of great teachers you know and it's not about a parent necessarily staying home and just you know teaching one or two children at a time there's there's co-ops, there's coordinations with charter schools, there's groups, you know, and so it's an amazing movement. But um, yeah, I just think we're in the end days of of uh, what what I like to say in Nazi Germany of the public system. Well, I hope so. Government schools, even you know Wellesley Middle School, right? They took the children to a mosque for Friday afternoon prayers. They didn't take them to a synagogue, and they didn't take them to a Christian church. And their excuse was, well, the synagogue prayers are after sundown and the Christian churches meet on Sunday. And so this was the only opportunity we had during the week. Well, you could have taken them to a shul or to a church even when a service wasn't being held. And, and you certainly, there are other services throughout the week, at least it, it, it's St. John the Evangelist and St. Paul's Catholic Church is there. And I know that the, the Presbyterian Church and the community uh, Wellesley Community Church have a lot of activities during the week, but oh, no, 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 those weren't suitable, but they did take them to a mosque. These teachers have an agenda, and it's not to foster love of country. It's not to foster the strength of Western civilization. And it's certainly not to teach them how to read, how to write, and how to think. Yeah, no, and, and well said. I mean, it's really, 
you know, this is this is this has been a slow burn and a long game for it's really a com communist manifesto. And I'm sure you've talked about it in depth. Yep. Um, and it's everything they're doing. It's like children are not learning to read. They're not learning to write. They're not learning to think for themselves. And everything we're trying to do at the Britfield series, number one, is to bring creativity back into the classroom and get kids thinking for themselves and offering really great, wholesome books, really, that are not only edifying and encouraging, uh, but books that they can learn from, like I said. So, but it is, it's a 19th century industrial model, and it was designed to to really, uh, you know, create sort of a group think not individualism and um and a scatterment of so many you know tests and types of focus in, in certain subjects that are irrelevant like the sat test was developed for the military and after five years the guy ditched it and shelved it because it was a disaster and then all of a sudden the educational system picked it up as a watermark and it measures nothing doesn't measure it measure children's ability their creativity the iq test is bunk it was supposed to do the absolute opposite creativity and and intelligence isn't linear it's not something that you can measure that way so everything that we've learned and been told through all these systems is a lie and um even, even the the fact we use 10 percent of our brain another lie we use we use 100 percent of our brain so and every yeah, child exactly is, i was a yeah. and, and that's the thing standardized tests well children aren't standard you know, no. I'm I can't I can't even get a standard size shirt, right? I'm six five. I'm a 15 and a half 36. Well, somebody else at six five might be a 1734 or a 1737. There's no such thing as standard. And to argue that children should be uh, scaled on a standardized grading system or uh, a standardized scale is ludicrous on its face because there's different types of intelligence as we all know uh, i was gifted in the sciences and uh, friends of mine were unbelievable musicians and artists yeah they weren't so good in the sciences i i kind of helped them through and 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 they helped me with things and so there are different types of intelligences some people are very good at foreign languages I, I can't play the piano because neurologically, I cannot play two melodies. I can pick out any mm. note. I almost have perfect pitch. I can play any melody with my right hand, but with this hand, all I can do is fake it with the C, G, and F chord and wow. forget about, you know, forget about your know, ragtime where you're playing two melodies at once. <laughs> and, and the most amazing thing I ever saw was a young woman playing a Chopin etude where she was actually playing three melodies simultaneously. Wow. Three, one melody with these three fingers, one melody with the bottom three fingers of her left hand, and the third melody she was playing with her index finger and thumb of each hand, and her hands were flying all over the keyboard, and you could hear three distinct melodies, and it was the most wow. amazing thing. It's like, I couldn't do that if you had $10 million on the table waiting for me if you can do that, you get the 10 million. Uh-uh. Yeah, I mean, kids are just uh, amazing. They're highly creative. They're 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 all little geniuses, frankly. They're all gifted. Um, everyone learns differently. The fact that, you know, your only qualification to be in the class is that you're 12 years old. And then you wonder why nine or 10-year-olds are squirmy or not paying attention or disruptive mm -hmm. in class when they're sitting here in this institutional model, you know, for 40 hours a week, are you absolutely out of your mind? That's the most unnatural thing in the world. And there was a great test, which I'm sure you, you heard of by George Land. And he designed it, you know, for NASA. That's a whole nother story. But it was a creativity test. And um, it was very successful in, in, in testing the astronauts. And he took that same test, put it into the educational system and tested thousands and thousands of students. And he noticed the five-year-olds, 98 out of 100 five-year-olds were, were testing off the charts. 
So 95 little genius, 98% were geniuses. Tested yeah. them again at 10 years old and it dropped to 30%. Dropped, tested them again at 15 and it dropped to 12%. And so well, you just saw that we educated, yeah. yeah, we educated the creativity right out of them. Exactly. And exactly. I want to get into that. I want to get into that sure. topic a little bit more after the break. You're listening to The Reckoning on TNT Radio. Deweaponizing weather with reality and perspective. Remember that song years ago, Lunatic Fringe? I know you're out there. Believe me, I know they're out there. I simply watched these people in the climate change cabal and listened to what they say. John Kerry is out there, and I will give him credit. At least he did not say a half billion people like Hillary Clinton. But the latest is that climate change is causing respiratory problems and has killed a half million people. Now, where do these statistics come from? Are there death certificates now that say you died because of climate change? But we've got this guy from France, I guess, Francois Jimin, a professor at the University of Liège and a specialist in environmental geopolitics. What the heck is that? He spoke on French TV about the threats of cats and dogs. Listen to this one. Cats and dogs are a disaster for the climate. A cat is a disaster for biodiversity. Do you hear that, Maisie and Shooter? And a dog is a disaster for the climate. Positive proof, folks. The lunatic fringe, except they may not be fringe anymore, is indeed out there. This is TNT Climate and Weather Watchdog. Oh my goodness, a dog. That's a disaster for a climate. Asking you to enjoy the weather. It's the only weather you've got. You ever heard of a polyp? Sounds like a rare species of toad. Actually, it's a lump that grows inside me, your bowel. Look, I'm pretty sure if you had a strange lump growing on your forehead, you might get it looked at, right? But when they're growing inside me, nothing, nada. And the polyps I get can lead to Australia's second deadliest cancer. So, until there's a way to make them grow on your face, it's up to you to get me looked at. Got it? This is The Reckoning with Timothy Shea on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Chad, I love what you're saying about all five-year-olds being little geniuses. And, uh, you know, we slowly, through that doctrinal, everybody's got to sit in rows and you've got to sit in your seat and basically getting people ready to work in the textile mills of New England back 150 years ago. That's where the public education system arose and why. Uh, we, we've really kind of pushed it out of children and, and the, the creativity especially. And I want to be very clear here, though, because one of the major criticisms of youngsters and young parents today is that they treat their children as though they're special. So they are special, but they're not unique. And that's the difference, isn't it? Each one is a little miracle unto themselves, but they all are. It's not as though your little Johnny or Janie has something over Stevie or Tommy or Susie down the street. You know, as I said, I think all children are born gifted. All children have unique talents. And just like you were saying earlier, it's like you're, you thrived in, in science. Um, I, I was very creative, you know, like with writing, as you can imagine, and, um, and art and things like that. 
um, didn't didn't excel in math, you know, and yet there's others that just excel in math. They see everything in their mind and stuff, and it's awesome. And so that's what I mean. Everyone has their own talents and their own gifts, but it's just like you have to do everything you can to, to nurture those gifts. And genetics is another one of these bunk science. I like to use that word, bunk science, that they're born special or gifted in that particular way or because their parents are certain this or they come from this breed or this other stuff. And most of that's crap, frankly. Um, there's a small thread to it that that's accurate. But if it's not if it's not addressed at like between five and seven, five or eight years old, then it doesn't have any any capacity or mean anything. Meaning if, you're, if your parents are mathematicians and your child sort of has a certain um, heightened intelligence into mathematics, if it's not seized at a, at a young age and tapped, then it just becomes irrelevant anyway. And again, that's a very small percentage out there and it's it, it's irrelevant. I think all children are amazing. All children are, are gifted and talented. They just need to, they need to find their vehicle, you know, and it took me a long time. You know what I mean? I, believe it or not, I, I was, uh, I struggled with reading when I was in second or third grade. I just, the part of it is I never found a great book. And and I guess from my, what my, my mom told me is it was Moby Dick that, that got my attention. And suddenly I started to read and then I started to get into reading and stuff and everyone's different. You know what I mean? And it's hard because it's like, you know, if they're doing, not doing this, you know, by a certain age, um, they're, right. they're, um, they're, they're trouble, you know what I mean? And they love to label everybody and label everything or or he has this or she has that. Most of that stuff's all made up. I mean, the whole pseudoscience, psychology, psychiatry, I don't want to get into any of that, but most of that's just bunk also. And it's just to somehow put your child in a little box. Well, they have this allergy or they have this problem or or this or that. And it's just like, you know, no, they're probably bored out of their mind or, you're, or you know, get them off all this junk they're eating or drinking, you know, or they have a good and diet. And the Ritalin. Right. Yeah. A little boy squirmy. So oh, he's got ADHD. You better drug him up. That, that was Sister made up. Leonelda. Yeah. Sister Leonelda, God lover, inculcated some horrible, horrible study habits in, in young Timbo because she introduced in sixth grade the concept of work packs. And so she'd give us a, a one gallon plastic baggie at the beginning of every month that had all of the assignments for the month. In the first mm. month, I they were fun. They were good assignments. I went through and I did them all in a day and a half. And then I had nothing to do for the rest of the month. And very quickly, I learned I could goof off all month and just work the last two days of the month. And so that's what I did. And it wasn't, it, it actually, I joke about it, but it did. It took me a while to realize the folly of that. Now, you know what? It's better to uh, get your work done first and then play rather than, than goof off just because you know you can uh, get it all done quickly. Yeah, I do think that we're, we're in a very interesting time. I think it's exciting. Um, there's obviously a negative side to everything. I think it's also a positive side. I think as a nation, at least the United States and even globally, we've never been more awake to what's going on. Um, things are finally being challenged. You're looking at millions and millions of people that are waking up and challenging things as again, like I said, with the homeschool movement from 5 million to almost 20 million in three and a half years. Are you yeah, kidding I me? To point, I wanted to come back yeah. to that because that time frame is very interesting. Hmm. What happened three and a half years ago? Well, I'll tell you what happened. All of a sudden, mom had a vague idea because mom usually was doing the drop off and the pickup and talking to the teacher and whatnot. But for the first time, if you had if you had latchkey children and both parents worked, it was both parents. But really, for the first time, 
dad got to listen in to what was going on in class because Johnny or Janie was over on a Zoom call in the kitchen nook as he was at the kitchen table working on his laptop. And dad didn't like what he heard. My niece and her husband, not political in the least. She's a nurse. He's an EMT. They've never really been very engaged in politics or or seen the importance of it until now. And now they're they've decided they're not vaccinating their children and they're homeschooling their children because they want them to actually get an education. There you go. No, beautifully said. And there's so many of those examples. And it's funny too, because I was on our national tour. We did multiple multiple tours. As I said, I drove 9,000 miles visited 23 states, over 200 schools, actually, and more than 40,000 students. And I, I went to every type of school you can imagine, from, from charter to uh, public to private to Title I to Catholic to Christian, you name it, to even homeschool farm in Reno, Nevada. And I was in Memphis, Tennessee, March 2020, when all this nonsense happened. And it was really kind of sad because I was like, finally in the heart of America. And I, and I was trying so hard to sort of get there, you know, like I went all the way up through Oregon and Seattle and then came back and then Texas all the way down to New Orleans and all the way up. And I just couldn't wait to be in the sort of heart of it. You know what I mean? Um, uh, Kentucky and then Tennessee and then uh, Indiana and Ohio and, you know, really just cool places. And I had to turn around and drive all the way back. And I was thinking to myself, and then I started to ask my friends, I said, it'll be very interesting to see how many children go back to school when this nonsense is over. And people, because we've been researching this for, for years, and people are saying, what? I said, I'm basing it on three things. Number one, just as you said, parents for the first time are going to be horrified by what their children are learning or being taught or exposed to in the schools as young as three to four to five years old. Are you kidding me? Number two, how far behind they are in certain subjects that they shouldn't be. And number three, something else you alluded to, is that when they sit down and do their homework uh, or assignment for that day, that, that within two, maybe even three hours, they're finished. And then they can spend the rest of the time playing and growing up at 10 or 11 years old, doing something creative, painting, playing a musical instrument, learning something, and you know, exploring, pe- playing in the park, whatever. you know. And then all of a sudden I started seeing numbers about 12 months afterwards uh, saying between 20 to 30% of parents will not be sending their, their kids back to traditional schools. And we're seeing the aftermath of it now. It's, it's tremendous, it's exciting. That's what I mean about a reformation. It really is. And a good friend of mine was a homeschooler before it was even popular. I think only the Amish were homeschooling back when Re had her children. It was the late 80s in Philadelphia. And, you know, the class assignment for the day that she would set, she, she would take them down to the museum. And they'd have art classes at the museum. And, and then they, you know, or going to a movie or going to the zoo or or going and doing science experiments at the science museum. All sorts of different curricular ways to learn that don't involve sitting in a class, listening to a teacher drone on and on and writing on a board. And it's funny because what we're getting back to before Horace Mann and Boston English and and Boston Latin in Massachusetts started the whole public school system Education was a privilege of the elite. And how were people educated? They had private tutors at home. Well, one of the things that I love is parents that can't afford a tutor at home or parents that have to work and and can't have one parent home. They're pooling together and they're forming educational cooperatives. And for example, 
I could teach the sciences and somebody else could teach the music and somebody else could teach the reading. Sister Leonelda, notwithstanding, I had an amazing grammar school education. In seventh and eighth grade, we were reading books like Brave New World, 1984, um, Animal Farm, uh, Lord of the Flies. And these are only being read by juniors or seniors if they're even being read in high schools today. So I, I felt incredibly blessed to have that education. And children are sponges, as you know, and they will absorb anything if they're interested in it. And I think it's fantastic that you've found a way to get them interested in the things that really matter in life. Yeah, that's what kind of what the Britfield series is all about. I mean, it's really just engaging the kids and they're ex the, it's just exciting. It's fun. It's real. They can connect to it. And I know it because I've received, you know, thousands and thousands of letters and feedback um, almost daily. You know, just a couple of weeks ago, it was uh, one English class and something I, I received four letters in the mail and said our assignment was to pick our favorite author and write him a letter. And I just thought, wow, it's like, I was so like stunned. I mean, like, like four out of that class. I'm like, wow, that's incredible. That's really um, there, cool. just, isn't it though? Yeah, like you know, like, and I get it. Like I'm very humbled and very, very honored and stuff. But it, again, too, it's just it's 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 what's needed out there. There's that massive gap, and we're just filling that massive gap. But um, I'm like you too. I, I I'm very blessed. I was with uh, I went to a great elementary school, and I had great teachers, and I have fond memories. And uh, it all started really in sixth grade. I had a great creative teacher, and um, one of our first assignments, I think, and it was like we're worth a third of the grade, and we had to write a book. And again, too, I think it had to be like 15, 20, maybe 25 pages. And, and again, that's a lot, but it could be yeah. like a paragraph and a picture and stuff, you know, 12 years old. And But it, that's when I learned to, to, you write about what you love and you write about what you know. And I love James Bond movies. It was right around Moonraker time. And so my first official book was James Bond, Eat Your Heart Out. I was a 12-year-old agent ah. working for working for the British government in England. And I and I lived down in, in Hampshire um, uh, in a mansion. And I had a red Ferrari and I'm dating myself, but my, my partner was Jacqueline Smith from um, uh -huh. Charlie's Angels. Sure. And, um, and we had this assignment to find this criminal and I had to drive all through Europe. And it was like the coolest book ever, right? And uh, here we are, fast forward 40 years later, 12 year old you know, orphan up in Yorkshire, fast paced adventure. And it's just like, because of that experience, because of finding a, the vehicle of what I wanted to do. And it's just like, especially at that age, how quickly are all the art programs canceled because oh, we're not going to use art. In fact, big mistake. Right. You know, number one, creativity is the most important skill in the world um, across the board. Creativity is and like creative applicants are, are, are getting jobs five to one, 10 to one. Um, I think in LinkedIn last year it was the number one most desired skill. I've done my own research on, on this, uh, you know, through writing papers and I, I'm part of a PhD program. And, and so I was doing my own research on it, knowing that creativity is literally the most important skill set in the world. Meanwhile, you know, they're pushing accounting and they're pushing uh, engineering and they're pushing mathematics, all replaced by technology and AI. I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm just saying it's a fact. And they know it. And they know that most of the engineering jobs are offshored. And they know in five to 10 years, believe it or not, 40 to 50% of all engineering jobs will be obsolete. 40 to 50% of all legal jobs will be obsolete. 80% of all accounting jobs will be obsolete, uh, including media. And you can just go down the whole list. The one thing that AI will never replace and cannot replace is creativity. And so that's, that's exactly why we're right. so, yeah. And that's why like that's creativity has been our beachhead. Elementary middle schools has been our beachhead from day one. 
And, um, you know, it's just, it's just, a, it's a student at a time, teacher at a time, it's a classroom, it's a school at a time. That's our focus. And uh, it's exciting. And we are having impact on, on literacy too. I receive a lot of um, emails from, from librarians and they're like, I don't know what it is. She goes like, but I got this 15 year old reluctant reader. He's never read a novel in his entire life. I recommended Britfield to him. He read it in two days and uh, came back and said, I want book two and stuff. And I, I, I wasn't planning that, of course, but it's like, it's just wonderful when you, when you focus on quality and, and really anything of quality is going to take time. All these overnight successes is complete bunk, you know, oh, a superstar out of the garage and look what they've done. And no, no, every, every overnight success takes between one to two decades. And the difference between a hobby and a profession is about 10,000 hours of dedicated time. It's a fact. You can't cheat it. You can't cheat. Exactly. Quality. And, yeah. and what I love and what a great testament that young man and here's why I, I think, this is my thesis at least, you're reaching children just above where they are, right? You're not meeting them at their level because what would be interesting about that? And you're not reaching them so far above them that it's not accessible to them, but you're reaching them just above where they are, which encourages them to grow. I think that's very accurate. I've never, I never sit there and say, oh, they're 10 years old. I'm going to talk down to them. I never talk right. different. And I'll tell you something we do with our, our programs is for my books, uh, starting with book one, it was the third manuscript. I'm sorry. It was the third draft of the manuscript of book one. And I already went out to middle schools, elementary, uh, I'm sorry, middle schools, private and public, you know, and, and, and put together a program and, and, Asked the dean or the president if, if, if some of the students would be interested, and they got the teachers involved. Just at one public school, we only had 35 manuscripts. We had over 200 students volunteer to read the almost 400-page book because they were so hungry for something extracurricular, something cool to do. And they would read right. it. They'd get three weeks to read the manuscript. They, when, they, when they were done reading it, they'd turn it in. They'd fill out a two-and-a-half-page survey with just some general questions. And then I would go to the library this is after the whole thing's done and meet with them during different periods, you know, four to five at a time. And I was no longer the author. I was no longer the, the, the adult or the teacher. I was sitting there as the pupil and I was fascinated to see what they thought of my book, you know? And, and at first it's like, Oh my gosh, it was exciting. I love it. It's the best thing I've ever read. And then I'm like, but what didn't you like about it? And what, if you could change anything, was there anything can, and I'm sitting there writing notes and I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm treating them the way they should be. I'm learning from them. I'm not treating them like little children. It's like, what do you know? I'm like, are you kidding me? Well, You're my reading audience. You guys know yeah, everything. Ch you know? <laughs> and children, children have the most finely developed or highly developed BS detectors of anybody on the planet. Isn't it true? They can, it true. they can see through phonies like we see through plate glass. And so you're not talking down to them. And what I love is that they volunteered for that not because it would look great on their Harvard application as an extracurricular activity, but because they had a genuine hunger for it. Yeah. Oh, it was totally cool. And you're right, too. I mean, I, I didn't have one problem during that entire tour. And I mean, I went I went everywhere. I came into like small little libraries up in Montana, you know, like with like 30 or 40 students, huge auditoriums at some of the top private schools in like L.A. with 400 students. And I wasn't there peddling something. I was there. I talk a little bit about Britfield and my idea and how it took me 10 years. And then I would literally be saying to the to the children, fourth through eighth graders, I'd say, you know, uh, we all have ideas, you know, and sometimes the idea is simple, something you want to do over the weekend. Sometimes it's a bigger idea, something you want to do when you grow up. And sometimes you're a great. Yeah. What a great gift to children, the idea that there are ideas and it's okay for them to have them too. Chad, we're going to have to leave it right there. Oh, I wish you a happy Christmas. I'd love to have you Thank back you. because there's so much more to talk about. 
Sure. Go to Britfield.com. You can find Chad on X at Britfield World, on Facebook and Insta at the official Britfield. That's it for tonight's Reckoning. Stay tuned on TNT Radio for the Havorier Moritz Show. I'm Timothy Shea. Until next time, God bless you. God bless these United States. Keep fighting the good fight. <laughs>